The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, as many of you may know, February is American Heart Awareness Month, and heart disease is the leading cause of death among women in the United States. So, Dr. Susan Steinbaum, a cardiologist with a specialization in women's heart disease, has de- dedicated her career to combating this obviously alarming statistic. And observing the patients who seem to be at the peak of their lives or also at the peak of their stress levels, Dr. Steinbaum wants to use a more holistic approach to heart health. So in her book, Dr. Susan Steinbaum heart book, Every Woman's Guide to a Healthy or a Heart-Healthy Life, she lays out a program that helps women shift from stress-focused and mind-centered living to heart-centered living. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Steinbaum. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as I, I focus a lot on women's issues on the show, and of course, this is, as I said before, American Heart Awareness Month, and we're going to talk specifically about uh, heart health for women and uh, cover on some of the key risk factors, for instance, for heart disease. And uh, maybe we should start with that. I mean, these are all things that you cover in your book. So uh, let's begin. What are the key risk factors for heart disease? I guess specifically for women. Are they different for women than they are for men? Well, yes and no. There are some that are similar, and, and, and I'd like to talk about that, but there are some that are really more pressing in women, and believe it or not, it's the ones that really depend on the brain. It's the depression, anxiety, hostility, and really stress at work that are risk factors for heart disease, and they actually affect women more than they do men. But the standard risk factors, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, obesity, family history, sedentary lifestyle, all of those risk factors are both Uh, pertain to men and women. In women, it's interesting, though, because we're a little different. We have hormones, and we potentially get pregnant. And what happens in our hormonal status and our pregnancy status also affects our hearts. So women who've had miscarriages, multiple miscarriages, or women who have high blood pressure, preeclampsia, elevated sugars, diabetes during pregnancy... They also have an increased risk. The guidelines, stroke guidelines just were released last week that said women who have migraines with an aura, that, that feeling of, of impending migraine happening, those women are actually at an increased risk for stroke. So we know that certain risk factors specific to women increase the risk of heart disease, but 80 to 90% of time in both men and women, 
Heart disease is due to the lifestyle risk factors that I did mention. One of the things, we'll go, just going back a, a, a little bit, because you mentioned that this new information, or is it new information that just came out saying that women, you know, some of the risk factors that they, women who have preeclampsia when they're pregnant, or you just mentioned migraines, those kinds of things. You know, I have a history of heart disease in my family, but I don't think my, and I go once a year to a cardiologist, but I don't think they've ever asked me about migraines or uh, pregnancy specifically related to uh, heart disease. So is this new information or is this information that the medical community has ignored? Um, I mean, high, you know, weight, cholesterol, blood pressure, those all, I mean, those I am aware of, and I think probably my listeners are too, but um, you just mentioned a few other risk factors that are very different than, than what I think have been addressed in the past. Or, You know, you're asking a question that is so frustrating to, to the women cardiologists and the American Heart Association. So you mentioned as your show began that this is American Heart Month. And during this month, as a spokesperson I am for Go Red for Women through the American Heart Association, we've been having multiple meetings. And these stroke guidelines are new. They came out last week. But the guidelines on women women and heart disease, the preeclampsia and all the pregnancy issues that I mentioned, came out two years ago. And what we know through the, the studies, and this is not great information, is that 30 to 50% of doctors on the front line know about it and actually implement it about 25 to 30% of the time. So we're having a problem here because the doctors aren't getting the information and the doctors are not asking the patients. So part of why I wrote this book was to tell women, this is what you need to know. This is, these are the questions you need to ask. And just like in your experience and what we keep hearing is that women are not being asked the question. One of my colleagues at a meeting yesterday said she went to a gynecologist. She's 52 years old to get a regular checkup. And the gynecologist did not ask her one question. It was a new doctor about her pregnancy history, did not ask her about migraines, did not ask her about any of these things that we were talking about. And she said in this meeting, she walked out and she really did not know what to do. And I think as a cardiologist, I hear this story and say, you know what? This is happening across the country. We're trying to get the word out. We're trying to educate doctors. We have all of those educational um, forums to do that. But that's why I'm talking to you today, and that's why I wrote the book, because in my experience, when women know, women do something about it. And I'm telling all women this is important for you to know, this is important for you to talk to your doctor about. What about, is there a difference between male physicians and female physicians? I mean, that's really startling what you have to say, but I have to say just personally that all fits into my experience going to a physician, a primary care physician, as well as a cardiologist. They never even ask me because I'm thin or my weight seems, you know, I'm the right weight and have the right BMI, but they don't ask me any kinds of lifestyle questions, which I always find very interesting. And if I have the information... Why don't they have the information? You said they don't get the information, but do they not? Do they get it and then they don't use it, or is it, I, I, 
I'm really not quite sure, you know, that statistic that you just quoted about, you know, what, maybe up to 50% of the doctors have the information, but only 25% of them use it. Why? It's not that they don't have it. Yeah. The guidelines come out. We all have access to it. As a cardiologist, and certainly as a cardiologist that specializes in prevention women, every little detail that comes out, I read. I don't read about what's going on in the gastroenterology world. I don't know about that. And so I think that sometimes doctors who you might see as a general practitioner, the family practitioner, internist, it's not that they don't have access to it. It might not be on their radar. And so when it does get on their radar and they do see it and they do read it, sometimes it takes a little while to implement it, that it really takes time for doctors to incorporate it into their practice. Now, that might sound scary, and it is, and I get that, but when it comes to changing the paradigm of women and heart disease, it's taking a while. It's been 10 years since Go Red started. I will tell you, shifting the doctor's minds about women and heart disease has been very, very challenging. And again, that's why I'm talking to you, and that's why I wrote this book. Yeah, and that's why your book is so important. And I guess as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking we as women, we have to be informed consumers. That's the words that come up in my mind. Advocates Um, for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. All right, so given that, and you're, obviously your book is going to provide us with a lot of the information that we need to be armed with when we go to our physician and ask the right questions. Okay, then what? After we ask the right questions and we are able to establish what the key risk factors are for us as women, which is different than for men, which would seem like a no-brainer. We're, I mean, we're different animals. We give birth. I mean, but anyway, um, preventative care. Yeah. Um, that's not real. We talk about it, but I don't think we really, doctors don't really focus on it, on preventative care, lifestyle habits. I mean, which is something obviously in your book you talk about, stress. Let's get into some of that. Once we know the risk factors, now what are some of the things that we can do in terms of preventative care? Yeah. So I, I want to, I don't want to have your listeners believe that doctors don't know what they're doing, but no. I'm going to tell you that it's not something that's taught in medical school. Doctors aren't taught about nutrition the same way they're talked about medications, and that's just the truth. And so when it comes to preventive care, again, everyone needs to be their own advocate. When we look at the statistics and we understand how deeply our lifestyle affects our hearts, It is so critically important for every woman to understand exactly who she is and exactly what she needs to do in order to take care of her heart. Now, what does that mean? My book, Dr. Suzanne Steinbaum's Heart Book, this is my heart book. This is my story. And what I tell every single woman, you write your own heart book. You write your story. Not only what you eat, not only how much you sleep, what you drink, how much you exercise, but do you get to laugh? Do you get to de-stress? Do you get time alone by yourself? 
do you get to understand exactly what you need and who you are to become as heart-centered and as heart-healthy as possible? And I think until you become accountable, until you become your own journalist of yourself, you don't really have an understanding of that. One of the things I always hear from my patients when I say, write down everything you eat, and they say to me, I know what I'll eat, I just tell you. And I say, no, 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 you've got to write it down. You've got to write your heart book. And I will tell you 90% of the time, patients will say to me, I didn't realize, I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. And a lot of times we go through life with this insane checklist of all the things we have to do and all the things that we're thinking about and the next thing we need to accomplish that we don't exactly pay attention. We're not in the moments of who we are, what we need, what we're doing. And that's what I'm suggesting that first and foremost, everyone does to get preventive care. And also, I think in addition to that, and uh, writing it down is, uh, is so important because I think there's also, you know, uh, my background is as a social worker. I think people or individuals or women, we tend to kind of be in denial too. You know, we we think we do certain things and we kind of convince ourselves that we do. We eat well, we exercise well, but we really, as you say, sit down, think about it, become aware, emotionally aware, write it down. Uh, mull over it, we'll find that perhaps this, you know, we are not doing what we think we are doing for lots of different reasons. But um, now one of the other things you talk about, lead a love-focused heart life or heart-led life. Um, That's another area that physicians never ask about uh, a healthy sex life. I don't think a physician has ever asked me that. And that's so important to one's well-being. I was going to say particularly women, but for all of us. I think what's fascinating, and I have to tell you, this, this is not something that I just wrote from the top of my head. You know, I really did the research to find out what about women and sex. Because we, I mean, listen, we turn on the TV and every day you hear about erectile dysfunction. Like, it's a, you know, that's all we're talking about. So we know a little bit about men and their sex lives and the issues and heart disease, but nobody's really talked about women and sex. And what I found in the research is that as a a part of a heart-healthy life, intimacy, not just intercourse, but intimacy, hugging and kissing and, and just holding hands, it increases these hormones. I think we've all felt it. We know what it is. Um, that decreases... Inflammation makes us happy, um, makes us nurturing and, and calms us down. And there, these hormones, these anti-inflammatory, actually increases the immune system. It's part of a heart-healthy life. And so women in their 70s and 80s, it's important to understand that this is part of being heart-healthy. I think as women go through menopause, a lot of sexual issues come up um, with a decrease in estrogen. Women tend to get vaginal dryness and, and other issues that make sex more difficult. But what I learned in, in the research is that continuing to be a sexual being, continuing that part of your life as best you can with whatever assistance you need, um, either hormones or, or other things, it's part of what keeps us as women heart healthy, and it's important. 
I agree with you, and I think it's 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 actually critical. And I think as we age, and and sex takes sex is always important, but it, affection and kissing and holding and touching and maybe being more creative after menopause, um, in terms of your sex life. I mean, there are so many things, um, and it is critical. And my question is, do you think that we focus more on those? issues or on that kind of a lifestyle, maybe people or women would stop eating so much and there would be less obesity because, you know, that's a whole other issue. I don't know if we can fit that into the picture, but that's not healthy either. Is that a substitute for not having the heart-healthy lifestyle that you're talking about, that we stuff our faces? I'm so glad you asked this question because I think it plays everything into it. There has been a 70% increase incidence in obesity in the past 10 years. When I talk to patients who are overweight, obese, and I say to them, and this is not all the time, but sometimes, what's the eating pattern? Tell me. And I hear so often, I eat because I'm stressed, I eat because I'm lonely. And that pattern of behavior, if we separate that from the rest of life, you're eating when you're stressed. Well, if I tell you that there is a way to get rid of the stress. If I tell you that there's a way to be affectionate and have love and the sexual part of our being gets triggered and turned on again and it takes away that loneliness and the stress and that that part of us that has the void, then you know what? I think it would help with people's overeating. I actually write in the book about the heart book, writing your own heart book and understanding yourself a little bit. And I ask you to ask yourself these questions. Not only what are you doing, but why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you acting on behaviors that you know are unhealthy for you? And a lot of those questions, when you think about them and you actually answer them, there are solutions. There are true solutions. And it's a matter of being engaged in your own life and becoming accountable. A lot of times people victimize themselves and say, you know, this is just the way it is. There's nothing I could do about it. I have this job. There's nothing. They feel paralyzed. And what I'm saying is ask the questions. Get the answers. Become accountable, and you can do something. Dr. Steinbaum, can you give us an example, like uh, an example of a couple of your uh, cases, your patients, where they've come in, you've assessed and done the diagnosis, and they have made significant changes, like, you know, some dramatic changes in their life, and then it's really changed their whole lifestyle and their heart-healthy life. One of the people that I talk about um, in the book, is a, she's a mom, kids, she used to be a runner, she stopped doing everything, and she started not feeling well. And in talking to her, and I'll never forget it, it was almost like there's nothing I can do. I'm too busy. I have the kids. I don't have help. I don't have enough money for childcare. There was every single reason why she could not take care of herself. And I'm telling you, she was sick. She did not feel well. And we talked. Well, what, is, what are the options? What's going on in your life? Where, where do you live? What's, what's happening? And we figured out there were moms who were probably in the same situation. She could reach out to another mother, get help through that mother, tag team babysitting and, and work together. And what happened to her, and this is just an example because I'm, I get to see this all the time. 
she made the effort. She became accountable. She became in charge of her situation. And what happened was she got some help. She started exercising again. Exercise probably is the best medication, and I think for so many situations of heart issues, it's, it's probably the most powerful thing you can do for yourself. And Maybe if we her, thought about exercise in terms of medication, more people would do it because, you know, medication is one of those key words. Exercise is medication. Anyway, oh, go yeah. on. Yeah. I, tell, I tell my patients, you know what? It's not a luxury. It's a medication for you. You go home and put, here's a prescription, put it on the refrigerator because it's a medication. And when she did that and changed everything in her life, um, all of a sudden she started feeling better. And, and that's just a small example. I have patients who 150% told me there was no way they could lose weight. They were not going on a diet. They couldn't do it. It wasn't going to happen. And over time, writing their heart book, understanding I'm up at night eating potato chips, popcorn, pretzels, watching TV, and I would say something as stupid as, why don't you go to bed an hour earlier? Try that. (laughs) Read a book. You know, and that solved 1,500 calories right there, and all of a sudden there's weight loss. Could you imagine? Just going to bed a little bit earlier. That was the diet. Small steps. I think uh, women, uh, not just women, men as well, you know, when we're in that kind of a situation, it just seems so overwhelming and you need somebody. Well, you need your physician. You need a physician like you to be able to say, you know, it really is just baby steps. All you have to go to bed a half an hour earlier, an hour earlier. It's not some and and doctors physicians tend not to say that they they'll look at a patient and say well you're 40 pounds overweight you have to lose 40 pounds and and that's it well, thank you doctor <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you because i'm thank not going to do for that. that you know and and i say to my patients all the time please don't go on a diet because then i'm going to have to watch you go off that diet and gain the weight back and that's painful for me to watch you know obviously painful for you but it, it's not so much about that. It's not buying the latest books and diet fad. And it's, it's not the right way. It's, again, being accountable, making small changes. You don't need to have cream sauce. You can have tomato sauce. You don't need to have a, a muffin for breakfast. You're not going to die if you don't eat a muffin. You know, it's, it's just understanding that nurturing yourself, that's the gift, not the muffin. You know, people say... I just wanted to do something nice for myself, so I had a cake. I don't get that. If you really need a cake, have a bite. But if you want to do something nice for yourself, go for a walk. I have a question for you because I'd like your comment on this. It's, it's a, um, I, I'm, I'm watching the Olympics, Olympics kind of sporadically and watching the commercials and the marketing. And uh, I won't mention it, but one of the major cereal companies, and I don't know if you've seen this, this commercial or not, had a commercial where they were advertising cereal for children, I think, specifically. It was marshmallows and chocolate and some kind of biscuit thing, which probably was filled with the sugar and salt as well. This is the marketing... The, the companies that are marketing themselves on the Olympics with the you know for the Olympic um, champions what how why you know you're fighting those kinds of things as well I guess is what I'm saying the individual physician and or the patient I mean it's mind blowing <laughs> you know I hear I see um, so much about 
our food industry. And it's so upsetting. You know, it's, it's really what's killing Americans. It's what's increasing obesity in children. The fact that there are so many processed foods. You know, you go into the frozen food section and pick up these children-friendly foods that are absolutely filled with high-fructose corn syrup. I say to my patients, if you cannot pronounce an ingredient, put it down and walk away. Yeah, good because advice. Food, food should not be so complicated. And if it is, it's processed, it's chemicals, and it's not for you. And when you look at those cereals, this is what's being marketed as a healthy food. It's during the Olympics, during our physically fit time. And, and you just have to pinch yourself because this is the reality of the country we live in. It's the supersize me culture. It's the more is better. And living in New York City, we, uh, our mayor, Bloomberg, really fought against sugared sweetened beverages, large sizes being banned in the city. It didn't pass, but it got a lot of attention because what people started talking about was the reality of sugars in children's diets affecting obesity and increasing diabetes, which is an epidemic in this country. So it's not just education. It's not just saying you have to eat healthy. What does that mean? It means that when you see that cereal on TV... It's not good for you. It's good for the company that makes it, but it's not good for you. And mm-hmm. you need to be the healthcare advocate for yourself to say, I am not only not going to buy that, I'm not going to support that company in manufacturing that. CVS pharmacies just banned the sales of tobacco in their pharmacies throughout the country. This is the first major brand to say we are not going to help Americans get sicker. And I'm hoping this trend increases, but I don't see it happening in the food industry. And so we have to do that on our own. Yeah. Well, I think books like yours and obviously speaking out and being a uh, you know, the, for the American Heart Association, Go Red for Women. I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention your book again because we only have a couple minutes left, but Dr. Suzanne Steinbaum's heart book, Every Woman's Guide to a Heart-Healthy Life. I mean, that's the beginning. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we have to, uh, con- you know, you have to continue to talk about, obviously, on your show. I know you're on television all the time. And uh, then I think sometimes the focus does begin to shift. It really does begin to shift. But um, as you say, we have to be aware of, particularly women, who we are, what we eat, what we do to uh, have a heart, heart, you call it heart-centered healing, right? Yeah, just to live from the heart, to really, really pay attention. I think that when you live from the heart, when you live from a place that really you are taking care of who you are. You're living with passion. I, I feel so lucky because every day I get to do what I am passionate about. And I will tell you, that keeps my heart healthy. You need to find that. You need to find that place where you're living, nurturing yourself, mind, body, and spirit. And when you get there, that's what a heart-centered life is about. Dr. Susan Steinbaum, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, you enlighten me and my listeners and uh, just continue to do the work you're doing. It's great. Thank you so much. Thank you.
We are going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. Coming up next is Jamie Knoll. She's author of The 95% Vegan Diet. We'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show, and I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My second guest this morning is Jamie Knoll. Jamie is the author of The 95% Vegan Diet, and she co-authored this book with her daughter. Um, we're going to be talking to her about the 95% vegan diet, which is based on solid scientific data that points to the health benefits of a plant-based diet, but also allows for those little things we can't live without. And we know what those are, chicken wings uh, that we eat on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jamie. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here. All right. Well, your background, uh, you have a very solid background in, uh, you're a nutritionist, a clinician, a research scientist, patient advocate, uh, pharmacist. So you have a lot of credentials after your name. So, um, everyone's, you will, uh, take what you say seriously, obviously. But let's talk about it. The 95% vegan diet. Exactly what is that? Okay. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, uh, what's the at 5% when really we should be focusing on the 95% because that's where people are really going to derive their best health. Um, it is 95% plant-based um, by a total percent of calories. Um, and, you know, basically my goal is to teach people how to eat delicious, satisfying plant-based meals that um, 
are going to contain an abundance of antioxidants, plenty of protein, and uh, really just a fraction of the fat they're eating now, which is going to help them lose weight if needed and become as cancer-proof, diabetes-proof, heart disease-proof, and age-proof as possible. Jamie, it seems to me you have such a difficult task. I mean, I don't know if you were listened at all to my first guest, who is a cardiologist, and uh, uh, covered. We covered also some of these issues, but not specifically plant, you know, vegan dieting. But you know, when you look at the population and what we actually are eating, and how obese and fat we are, we're not following a vegan diet. Ninety-five percent, not even. I mean, fifty percent. I'm not. Sh- so. How do you change the attitude and the behavior of uh, most Americans, really, um, to, to really even think in this direction? Right, Catherine. Well, you know, the first thing I would say is that, you know, we value the uniqueness of each person, and not everybody is ready for this message yet. Um, so we know that it is going to be a, a tough task, and people really need to hear over and over again. But I think what we need to do is get people to the point where, kind of where we are with smoking. You know, when somebody gets lung cancer, the first thing we ask is, well, were they a smoker? And, oh, yeah, that was expected. I think we have to get there with heart disease and type 2 diabetes um, and diet-related cancers as well to say, uh, you know, it's it, rather than looking at it as an unfortunate tragedy to say, you know, that could have largely have been prevented. And you're right. Um, you know, the prevalence of obesity has increased by 250%. Um, but, but we also have to recognize that it's taken two full generations to get to where we are today. And so, you know, literally, if we, if we, well, if we paint it with a broad brush, we can actually say that there's at least one generation of people in our country who were not raised eating in a healthy manner. And so it's really going to be only through deliberate and consistent mentoring that we're going to find our way out of this downward spiral. And so, you know, I think we always talk about the treatment of obesity and, and diet-related issues as um, having, you know, a very high failure rate. You know, obesity has a 90 to 95% failure rate. But we haven't really yet shed a light on how we might prevent obesity So if we can get to the younger generations now to teach them how to customize a healthy plant-based diet for themselves, then they can transfer those learnings over to the next generation. So, So, Jamie, you, uh, as the educator, um, as the... I think one of the things it would seem to me that you would be doing is you you start with these young mothers and, and really have to kind of point out the scientific data that I just mentioned um, that the health benefits of a plant-based diet. I mean, if you get to, then they're going to start, you know, they're feeding their children. They're going to, you know, maybe you have, you know, you, they feel guilty if they aren't giving their kids the best food or the best, you know, or they, so wouldn't it be, isn't that a place to start? It does take a generation or hopefully not two, but you do have to, start with this generation. Um, is that one way of doing it? I think so, um, definitely. And um, you know, we are actually starting to do workshops on the 95% vegan diet and um, seem to definitely be attracting um, more younger mothers. Um, you know, it's interesting, Catherine, and you're probably aware of this data, but um, taste preferences actually start in utero um, while the baby is still in the womb. 
Um, so I would also like to encourage uh, women who are considering having a family to really think about, you know, their diet while they're even pregnant um, and then certainly breastfeed for as long as possible and shape your child's um, taste preferences so that they enjoy eating the healthier, higher antioxidant foods. Yeah, that's great advice. So let's now talk specifically about what are the health benefits. I mean, specifically, you know, if you if, do it, if we follow the diet that mm-hmm. you know you're recommending or that you're proposing, what are you know what are the health best uh, benefits behind the diet specifically? Well, you know, the health benefits be- start with the fact that. Um, you know, the diet does meet the medical nutritional guidelines for all of the big associations, the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes, and the American Cancer Society. You know, all of those diseases, cardiovascular diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and diet-related cancers such as um, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, um, even ovarian cancer to an extent, um, the number one strategy for preventing these diseases is weight loss. And when you consider that um, two-thirds of our population is either, um, you know, overweight or obese, that is really the place to start. So that's the number one thing um, that I teach people in the book, how to, you know, I wanted to teach them what I know as a dietitian. I, I want to teach them how to fish so that they can develop and design their own customized plant-based diet that will help them lose weight. That is the number one strategy for preventing these um, chronic diseases. And so that's, that's the number one thing. The, the, the other thing is that by moving away from uh, meats and oh, particularly dairy as well, um, you know, we're able to sort of calm our immune system. Um, casein in milk has definitely been implicated in many types of um, autoimmune diseases, cancer, um, even questionably uh, type 1 diabetes. Uh, so we really need to keep our kids from uh, drinking cow's milk too early and, and really just try to stay away from it. Um, Jamie, so I have a question, a practical question. And, and when I go to the grocery store and, and, and perhaps I obviously am not following your diet you know, to the T, I would like to, but I find it very difficult in, in just the regular grocery store, not a specialty grocery store, or, um, but I can't find vegetables that taste good. I, I love vegetables. I actually crave vegetables. I like vegetables better than fruit, but it's really difficult for me, and I try to buy organic vegetables, but even so, they seem tasteless and more tasteless than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I'm not sure why, number one. And so all the food stuff, which is like three quarters of the food in the store is all the packaged stuff, the processed food, all the stuff in the middle. I try to, you know, go on the perimeter and buy the good stuff, the good food, the plants and vegetables. But I find them somewhat tasteless. And uh, is that because of the way they're being produced um, and it doesn't really entice people to buy vegetables either. Right. Well, you know, honestly, um, I agree with you. Um, and I, I will say that, you know, when I buy organic um, fruits and vegetables, I do feel that they taste a lot better because the pesticides do get, you know, get through all of um, the layers of the flesh of, of the um of the vegetable or fruit, and so that may have something to do with it. Um, 
but, you know, frozen vegetables generally are better because they're frozen at the peak. Um, the other thing I would say is not that, um, you know, the 95% vegan diet says that you have to do cooking a lot, but one of the appendices in our book is devoted to, you know, our favorite vegan cookbooks. And um, you can really make really more delicious meals um, in a plant-based diet than you, than you can as an omnivore. I mean, it's the tastiest food I've ever had. Um, but, but you learn things. You learn along the way, and it's definitely a journey. Um, you know, you'll, you'll learn to use spices you may never have even heard of. You'll use um, ingredients you've never heard of. Most people don't know what nutritional yeast flakes are, um, but that will wind up in your grocery cart. And, and you will find that these foods are absolutely delicious and nutritious and filling um, as, you, as you head along this journey consistently. And I think if one is aware and you eat the kind of diet that you, you know, propose in the book, you're absolutely right. When you wake up the next morning, if you eat a plant-based diet as opposed to eating, uh, you know, beef and, and um, pork and all those, you know, uh, you feel better. I mean, if you really sit down and think, how, you really do feel better. I mean, I, at least, well, I mean, I know I do and, and, and my family and, um, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, if you really kind of experience the way you feel after you consistently eat the kind of diet that you're proposing, you feel a lot better, you, you, besides losing weight. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny you should bring that up because um, my own story is that, um, you know, I, I went 95% vegan overnight after seeing the really strong data behind um, the plant-based diet and managing type 2 diabetes and obesity, et cetera, at the American Diabetes Association meeting. Um, I went cold turkey, and um, I was, uh, this was about five years ago, and what I, I didn't even really think to notice this, but about three weeks after I started, I realized that I had not taken any ibuprofen or glucosamine for my aching joints. And, uh, you know, if I had been looking for it, I, I would have said, okay, maybe that's just placebo effect. But I wasn't looking for it. And I realized that, oh, my goodness, I have not taken any of these. I have no pain or stiffness in the morning. My joints are fluid. I have never felt better in my life. Well, that is a great, uh, I think, you know, for all those, the baby boomers, which is, um, you know, what, I don't know how many people turn 50 every day, but um, millions and millions of baby boomers would be really, I mean, interested in hearing that, seriously. And like you said, it was kind of like an aha experience, it sounds like. You, you just, it's just Suddenly you just became aware of, wow, I feel good. I don't need all this medication. Or I, yeah. Um, and that, I've had other you know, patients have that experience, too, where you know, they were taking handfuls of even prescription um, pain medication daily for aching joints and, and muscles and so forth. And you know, I tell them, first thing, just cut out all dairy. Cut out all dairy. Um, it, it will calm your immune system. And you know, a few weeks later, they're not taking those pills anymore. It's just really amazing. What do you say to people I don't who say and this would be maybe young families I don't have time to do this I mean I really I would like to I know you're right I know the diet is right I've read the book but I just can't do it because I it's, you know I have just there's too many activities too many things on my plate literally and so I can't do it mm-hmm. um how yeah Yeah and I I really empathize with that um 
On the other hand, um, you know, when you ask people what's the most important thing in your life, um, they will say things like my children or my health. Well, those two things are completely congruent with the idea of you spending more time on your health and and the health of your children. And so um, that's the first thing. I like to point out the incongruency of, of those two things. You know, we tend to spend more time worrying about gas prices for our car than we do about our own nutrition. Um, so I point that out. But but the other thing is the great thing about vegan cooking, Catherine, is that really almost nothing ever goes bad. And so what I do is, you know, I cook just a few days in a month. And, you know, you, you can freeze so many meals, um, sort of like pasta dishes. Um, vegan meals taste better on the second and third day because all of the spices and ingredients just kind of gel together. So I would say... Find a comfortable way within your life, because everybody's going to cook at some point anyway, whether they're going to pop something in the microwave or boil something on the stove. Just find some things that are satisfying for your family. Cook it in quantities so you have it on, you know, when you need it quickly. And then spend some time discovering things that you can grab in a hurry, um, you know, one of the things I love to do is to um, bake like oat bran muffins and that sort of thing and keep it in the freezer and that can be either a breakfast or a bedtime snack uh, that I don't have to worry about cooking. Yeah. So it is easier in a sense. It's just a different way of doing things because if you can freeze everything, that's easy. Then you take it out and defrost it and, and you're done with it. So that does make it a lot easier. Is it a lot less expensive to eat vegan than it is to eat meats? It can be, and you know how it, it depends on what what you choose in terms of eating vegan. I mean, certainly, you know, if you like to eat, for example, Mexican food, um, you know, beans are certainly a lot less expensive than meat. Um, now, if you buy a lot of um, fresh fruits and vegetables, that's where you're going to make up some of that, um, where you're going to add back some of the expense. Um, but and the thing I always point out to people is that. You know, if you're trying, if you're going to be losing weight, you're going to be consuming less calories than you are now. So, really, you're going to be buying less food, period. And so, if you, you know, look for sales, if you've got a farmer's market, um, you know, you, you stick with the um, less expensive but, you know, nutritionally dense items like beans, um, you know, and other legumes that you find on sale, then, you know, it really can be less expensive. It's all in how you look at it and how yeah, you approach it. Uh, yeah, and how you approach it, exactly. So, uh, let me give us some examples. I always like, you know, examples. Do you have any examples of your own uh, clients or people that you've worked with who have been able to change their diet and, and to consistently stay on it and they've better lifestyle, healthier, lost weight, uh, done more for their families in terms of a, a healthy lifestyle? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, again, the, the thing is, is that it's a journey. It's, a, it's really, it's literally um, months of discovery of I, I never realized it could be this delicious. And I can't believe, you know, I, I had one patient tell me, you know, I was literally taking handfuls of muscle relaxers, um, pain medicine, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and I'm not taking those anymore. Um, the other thing is, you know, certainly losing weight um, because you're eating a lot less fat. You're eating a lot less calorically dense. 
But I think the biggest surprise for people is just how delicious it is and the fact that you, you can really substitute things that are delicious. I was a cheese fanatic, uh, <laughs> what I would call a dairy queen, um, before I, you know, before I moved over to this way of eating. And that was my biggest thing. And that's the biggest thing I hear from patients too. You know, I just, I, I, you know, you'll have to pry my cheese out of my cold dead fingers. <laughs> I just have to have my cheese. And um, there are some excellent, excellent um, cookbooks out there that teach you how to make non-dairy, very delicious and satisfying cheeses. So, Thank you. so you in know, other words, it can be done, and you've done it personally, and also you've given examples uh, with your, your clients. I have, but, you know, you're a pharmacist, and I always think of pharmacists as like medicated, you know, pharmaceuticals. I mean, they just want to medicate you, and, you know, if, if you take one medication and it doesn't work, they'll give you another medication to make that medication, uh, you know, work or, or uh, not have side effects. So, like, I think of yeah. So I guess my question is, how do you, you kind of change, did you have to change your whole way of thinking or how did that happen from pharmacist well, to vegan? Thank you. <laughs> um, well, you know, I was a dietitian before I was a pharmacist. So, uh, you know, I really look at the entire picture and, you know, quite frankly, there are times to take medication. Um, you know, for example, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to take pills, and they're defining how well they're doing in, with their health as to whether they take pills or not. And that, that is a deadly point of view because, um, you know, if you have hypertension and you're unable to reach the health targets, you know, of, you know, let's say, um, less than 120 over 80 or whatever the, their physician has set for them specifically, if you're unable to reach the targets, then you are doing internal damage that is potentially lethal. That's why they call it the silent killer. And so if, if I have a patient who can't meet the targets, because hypertension occurs for a number of different reasons, some of which are not controllable, and, um, you know, I don't want to see you have kidney failure. I don't want to see you go blind. I don't want to see you have a heart attack or a stroke. You need medication. It doesn't, it doesn't define who you are, and it should not define your self-worth. It's what you need to be able to protect your health. So I see both. If, if people can do something by diet, great. But if they can't, then I'm going to encourage them to take the safest medications that we have um, you know, to achieve their health targets because that's what health is all about. It's the big picture. It's, it's achieving these health targets year after year after year. So it's a balance, as you're saying. It's not all or nothing. It's not just for everything that you may have wrong with you or uh, that you just automatically take a pill. You, you right. kind of balance it. You want to eat well, vegan diet, and then if, as you say, okay, if you have hypertension and there are reasons why diet isn't going to help, then you need, then you need to take a pill. Although my experience has been, and I do take a pill. It's interesting you should bring that as an example. <laughs> and I, I take one of the few pills. I only take a couple, and one of them is for hypertension. But one of the things that I noticed that my physician did was give me the most, um, I don't want to say toxic, but gave me medication that was just kind of way over the top to bring down my uh, numbers. And uh, I mean, I could bear, it was, they got so low, it was, I didn't need that is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You could have started with the least amount of medication rather than the most amount. And I don't know if that's something that most physicians do or not. So we had to switch to something that was far less toxic that worked and the numbers are correct. So is that something that 
the medical profession um, practices, I've, I've noticed that. You know, they start with the, you know, hitting you over the head with the medication <laughs> rather than working your way up if it doesn't work. Well, I think that, in the case of hypertension, it depends yeah. on where you started. I mean, if, you're, if your blood pressure was really dangerously high and your physician was concerned about an imminent event, I can see where he or she would have gone to a more aggressive um, therapy. But Some it wasn't. Have, yeah, okay. It wasn't, so, yeah. Some people have to take two or three or even four medicines to control their blood pressure. But the, but the, the way I look at it, Catherine, is you know, I look at the research because the only thing that matters is outcomes. And the research shows that there is no better hypertensive medication um, that has been proven to be better in order, you know, in other words, to prevent more heart attacks or more strokes than the basic old-timey meds that we've always used, like hydrochlorothiazide, you know, just a mild diuretic. Um, It also depends. I had mentioned that hypertension can occur for a number of different reasons. In young white males... Um, a lot of times the hypertension is caused by um, vasoconstriction. Um, in other words, their, um, their blood vessels are constricted and it's causing the heart to have to work better. Well, harder. In that case, you, know, you need a medicine that's going to dilate those blood vessels peripherally that you're not going to be able to really control that with diet. Um, and and that, the medications used there tend to feel like, oh, my goodness, you just hit me with a shotgun <laughs> um, because they, are, they do have a very profound but needed effect at the time. Blood pressure medicines don't make you feel good because we ten- if you've had hypertension, you feel bad, you feel okay for a while because your body has gotten used to that elevated blood pressure. Um, but when your blood pressure comes to normal, then you start to feel really bad for about a month or so. But in your case, it sounds like it went way too low and it wasn't really a good selection to begin with. Yeah, exactly. It, it's been fine and, and finally got to the, the least amount of medication that I needed and that worked. That's all. I, I just think that sometimes they, this whole, this tendency to over medicate yeah. is, yeah, is, yeah, and that's something that you don't want to do. Um, yes. we have a couple, yeah, we have a couple minutes left. So I want to just, uh, you know, focus on the book in the sense that I want listeners to know they can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, the 95% vegan diet. But, uh, Jamie, also, where can they go for, well, more information about your book, about you? Uh, do you have a website? We do. Um, our website is um, the. Uh, I'm sorry. Is 95 percent vegan with the word percent spelled out. Um, so I blog regularly, and I really encourage people to ask me questions through the website. I can be reached through the website. Um, we also have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter and Pinterest, um, and. It, I'm very um, I'm very accessible, so I hope people will ask because the goal really is to really make a profound impact in the future of our nation's health. It's not just about writing a book; um, it's about really making a difference. So please um, don't hesitate to contact me if I can uh, answer any questions or help in any way. Fantastic. Well, you have done that just by uh, being on the show today, and obviously we really appreciate it. Jamie Knoll, author of The 95% Vegan Diet. Thanks so much. Thank you, Catherine. Great talking to you. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at 
www.katherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.